how many of you own or have seen at some point a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records? How many? The Guinness Book of World Records has a mission to celebrate the world's best, to display the best things that the world has to offer, and they're doing so in some really strange ways. Let me just give you a few highlights from the 2013 book. Here is the guy with the biggest biceps. We photoshopped his face onto my body. Those are actually my biceps, people. Here's the second one, tallest hair. That's incredible. And then here's a final one. Most Barbie dolls. This is so peculiar to me. 5,000 plus Barbie dolls. What you find in any of these world records books is a perfect distillation of the strategy of the opponent that we're going to be thinking about today. Human beings excel at boasting. We impress ourselves with our own pomposity. We're braggers who are into self-glorification. We want to outdo everyone and make a name for ourselves. We want to be the biggest and the best. But by looking at ourselves and liking it, we miss out on seeing God and other people in our lives. The world is an enemy that wants to distract us and numb us and enamor us with ourselves. This is the second week of a three-part series called The Fight, Battling Evil Within. There are three enemies that seek to undo us. Last week we focused on the flesh, and this week we're turning our attention to the world, our battle, our fight with the world. So make your way in your New Testament to the book of 1 John. We're going to be studying a small section of this letter today. Specifically, we'll be working on 1 John 2, 15 to 17. But this isn't the last time that you're going to hear us talking about 1 John. I'd encourage you to remember the location of this small letter in your Bible because in just a few months, we're going to be settling down in it to study this letter for a while. We're going to be doing a book study of 1 John. As you make your way there to 1 John chapter 2, I want to limit some potential confusion from the outset by briefly, by briefly commenting on the connection between the subtitle, Battling Evil Within, and our topic for today, The World. Now, as we're going to see in a minute, the world refers to an environment, this large environment in which we live day in and day out. And it is, in that sense, external to us. So how does that coordinate with this focus on battling things within us? Isn't that a contradiction? How can we have a battle of evil within when the world is outside of us? I want to answer that question with an analogy. Let's say that you are deciding that even though it's getting colder and colder outside, that you want to get some exercise. You don't want to walk outside because it is so stinking cold. Instead, you decide that you want to go and walk around a nearby mall. But a funny thing happens every time you go to exercise by walking around this mall. Every single time you leave, you have bags in your hands. You just can't figure this out. You say to your friends, I go there in order to walk, but every time I walk out with bags in my hands. It's unbelievable. Well, it's not a huge surprise, right? I mean, you're walking around inside a mall. It's hard to resist the urge to shop 
when you spend time inside a mall. You see glittering images all over the place, items in windows, advertisements that you walk past over and over and over again. You see all of these people who aren't there to exercise. They're there simply to shop, and they look so happy as they're walking around with their bags. It's no surprise that you're leaving with these bags. It's very difficult to resist this urge. What is going on when you're doing this? In this instance, the world, this consumer shopping environment, serves as an accomplice, a co-conspirator in our demise. The environment is slowly eroding our resolve, and so it plays on our covetous disposition, and bam, it's Macy's all over again. The world, this environment, activates the evil within us, and then we act upon the stuff that goes on inside our flesh, that covetous disposition. Now, we could multiply tons of examples of this kind of thing, but the question to ask at this point is, are we stuck taking our cues from the world then? Do we have any options for fighting back? And John says that we do. I want to outline a three-stage process for battling with the world. And I would encourage you to jot these three stages down in your outline in your weekly welcome as we go. Hopefully you've made your way to 1 John in your Bible. I want to read 1 John 2, 15 to 17 for us. John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. All right, here's the first stage of a three-stage process. Size up your opponent. If you're taking notes, jot that down. Size up your opponent. If we're going to have a fighting chance in a battle with the world, we've got to know what on earth we're talking about. What does John mean when he uses the word world? Who is this opponent? I've already started to answer that question a little bit with that mall analogy a moment ago. But John helps us to understand what he's talking about by the way that he uses the word world and with some specific examples he gives of worldly stuff in verse 16. So let's start with the word world itself. This is the key word of this passage. John uses the word six times here and 23 times in all of his letters and the gospel of John. So what definition can we piece together by looking at the way he uses it right here? We can see in verse 15 that the world is in opposition to God. It's vying for our attention, our devotion, our love. It's associated with some unsavory characters in verse 16, lust and pride. John is talking about worldly values or attitudes that are opposed to God. He's talking about general societal influence, cultural shaping, environmental molding. He's talking about our atmosphere. He's talking about the air that we breathe, that which envelops us and supports us. Now let me try to take this hugely abstract concept and bring it into concrete terms. You know, for a lot of years I worked with middle school, high school, and college students. And one of the things that those of us who aren't in that stage of life can see very clearly of those who are in that stage of life is the external influences that shape them, right? 
Now you can see these things, whether or not they're very visible, like really tangible in a student's life, or they're kind of bigger picture and a little bit more hidden. You can see as students brush up against these things that they shape them. They have huge effect in molding the way they think and act. And so, for instance, when you think about the tangible, concrete aspects of peer pressure, you see a group of students hanging out together, and you can see that this pressure exerts on this one person, and they start to act just like the rest of them. They think like them, they talk like them, they act like them. Slowly but surely this happens, or very quickly this happens. This is also the case with some broader cultural things. You know, pumping and injecting directly into the lives of students, technology and movies and music and all sorts of stuff helps to shape and mold them. We see all of that just right out in the open. Perhaps less obvious are the bigger cultural things, North American life in general, high school life in particular, or the family context, all of them operating in specific ways. All of these things, visible or invisible, are working to create an environment, a society, in which certain values are kneaded into the dough of a student's life. Now, I find it really fascinating that we can, most of us, see that so obviously as a student is engaging in life, but we think that that ends at age 18 or 22. But it doesn't. It goes on and on for all of us. This is an example of a world the way that John is using the word here in our passage. There are, mixed up in all of these things, attitudes and values that are in opposition to God, and it's shaping us at the core of our lives. See, the world, according to John, operates on the level of values and attitudes, and slowly but surely it exerts pressure on us until we're in love with it, operating according to its values, and as a result, we live in quiet or sometimes explicit opposition to God. So the world is a worthy opponent. It's sneaky, it's subtle, it's seductive, and it calls for our allegiance, our devotion, our love for it. But John says very strongly at the outset of our passage that we shouldn't get in. We shouldn't love the world or, he says, anything in the world because everything in the world is opposed to God. But what specifically does he mean by everything and anything? He does get specific. He sizes up our opponent for us. He paints a picture of worldly influence by giving us three examples in verse 16. And I want to encourage you as we look at these examples not to blow off these specifics, thinking that this stuff isn't affecting you, and then just go on with business as usual. If you do that, you're just nodding to the fact that the world is already at work on you. It's already lulled you to sleep. You know, take a look in particular at verse 16. Notice these specifics. John says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, number one, the lust of the eyes, number two, and the pride of life, number three, comes not from the Father, but from the world. He begins describing these worldly attitudes and values by talking about the lust of the flesh. Now, this is related to what we covered last week with respect to sinful fleshly activities, but it can also refer more broadly to just our bodily existence, our desire to arouse and to satisfy the physical senses. The world promotes the lust of the flesh, seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake. 
Our earthly existence begins to consume us, and we begin to think that we have to live in the moment. We need to live for this moment and this moment alone. This is all that matters, and so my desires need to be met right now. I start to seek pleasure in every single moment of my life, and I, I put off, I shun delayed gratification for momentary satisfaction. I saw this displayed very clearly last week as I was watching the Bears game. I saw these Verizon wireless commercials. I don't know if you've seen this campaign or not. They've done this for football and they've done this for hockey. Each of these different commercials starts off with what looks like an extremely meaningful activity. You know, there's a dad spending time with his daughter or a husband picking apples with his wife. There's a son visiting his sick dad in the hospital, and you think, wow, this is really incredible. And then you realize that each of these things are just major inconvenient interruptions to watching football. You know, the dad, the son, the husband, they're all grieved because they're, they're unable to watch the football game because of these things. You know, the slogan for this set of commercials is F-O-M-O-F, which stands for Fear of Missing Out on Football. Yeah, I thought these commercials were really funny, and then I started to reflect on them a little bit, and I realized that I was just getting injected with the message of the world, shaping me as I imbibed it. it's, It's seeking pleasure for the sake of pleasure, and it's doing it at the expense of what matters most. This kind of worldly thinking, just living for the moment, seeking out pleasure, is fueled and it's strengthened by the fact that according to worldly values, this life is all there is. The lust of the flesh. You better live in this moment because this moment, this life, this pleasure is all you're going to get. There isn't anything after this bodily existence, no life after death. So you better just soak it all up right now in this moment. The band Death Cab for Cutie made this explicit in one of their songs. They, they sing in one of their songs about the silliness, the silliness of life after death, thinking that there's anything. These Christians think this insanity, and so they say this, our hearts stop ticking, this is the end, and there's nothing past this. Fourteen times before that song is over, they say there's nothing past this, there's nothing past this, there's nothing past this, there's nothing past this. And by the time that you're done singing, you're thinking, there must not be anything past this. This is the only life that we get. You think we get the message by the end of the song? That's the lust of the flesh consumed by bodily existence. I'm just seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake. Second, John refers to the lust of the eyes. I've summarized this one as seeking stuff for stuff's sake. Now this is your baseline, run-of-the-mill coveting and consumerism and hoarding and materialism and mass accumulation. The problem with this whole perspective, this worldly value and attitude, isn't only that I hoard and hoard and there's not anything left for anybody else. And the problem isn't only that I don't get to share and experience the benefits of it. You know, greediness is a direct result of the lust of the eyes. But worse than both of those bad things is the fact that when I get all lust of the eyes like, thinking everything in terms of accumulation, then I put people into the category of commodity, and I start to believe that people's value is only consistent with what I can have or what I can get from them. It's a whole way of looking at the world that makes it all about what I can get. And do you know who falls out of our sight line when this happens? 
God is completely removed from our sight line. I don't know if you can feel this kind of pressure, this kind of squeeze, molding, and shaping of the world as we get near Christmas. This kind of thing is just all over the place. We get so consumed with getting that our collective greediness crowds out our opportunity to give thanks to God. We have functionally taken Thanksgiving off the calendar so that we can start shopping earlier, so we can get faster on Thursday to Black Friday. And God is completely crowded out. He's just left to the side. I I overheard a conversation of a couple of women. They were talking about how overwhelmed they were with life. This was on November the 12th, and one of them said, I just can't wait until Christmas is over. On November 12th, I felt the same way. I've I've expressed the same kinds of things. Busyness and Christmas craziness and greed and crowding out thanksgiving to God and a lack of preparation during Advent and a similar simply general exhaustion begins to hollow out our souls and it leaves us empty. But at least we're holding a new phone at the end of it all. What? It's craziness. See, the world's agenda of seeking stuff for stuff's sake is a concerted effort to crowd God out so that we don't recognize him or his world or his agenda. Finally, John refers to the pride of life, and I've summarized this one as seeking self for self's sake. Now, I don't know if you're in the same boat as me, but I'm a lover of words. And as a result, I keep my ear to the ground on words that are being added to the dictionary. And so do you know what word this past August was added to the Oxford, Oxford Dictionary? In fact, this word became the word of the year according to the Oxford Dictionary. Do you know what word that is? Selfie. I hear the word being spoken. Yes, yeah, selfie. A selfie. Do you know what a selfie is defined by the dictionary? Here's the definition. A photograph that one has taken of oneself. Typically, one taken with a smartphone or webcam and uploaded to a social media website. Selfie is being used 17,000% more times than it was a year ago at this time. That is absolutely unbelievable. It's commonly known that words that make their way into the dictionary are indicators of what matters to a group of people, what defines a people group. We are growing more and more and more concerned with ourself. We're becoming selfie-centered. <laughs> it's the pride of life. Seeking self for self's sake. And it makes life all about me and my successes and my achievements and my ambition and my resume and my self-promotion on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram and Vine and whatever. You know, we take pictures of ourselves because we're obsessed with ourselves, and I'm really not sure if you can find an example of something that's more opposed to God than that. This is our opponent. Do you know your opponent? Have you sized up your opponent? The world is a mixture of values and attitudes that are opposed to God, shows up in all sorts of -of out-of-control desires for pleasure and stuff, and it holds us up in our own boasting Guinness Book of World Records-like So we make it all about ourselves and our own greatness. And John says simply but categorically and comprehensively and intrusively and surprisingly, don't love this stuff. 
by allowing it to shape you and mold you and put you on autopilot. Instead, fight back. I want you to size up your opponent right now. Which of these things, any of those three categories, is having the most influence on your thinking, your acting right now? I clearly haven't drawn our attention to every manifestation of the way that the world is exerting its influence on us, but something here has to have gotten you thinking, gotten you identify some aspect of the world's influence in your life. What is that thing? Size up your opponent. Second stage, watch film to prepare. Watch film to prepare. I've talked about the movie Cinderella Man before. I love that movie. And so as a result of us having this boxing theme, I couldn't resist talking about it again. There's actually a scene in the movie that I think is instructive for us along the lines of being able to understand how to recognize the weaknesses of our opponent. You know, we're watching this movie, and as we slowly but surely make our way through the movie, we see Jim Braddock, this hero who's been injured and is slowly coming back. He's working hard, and he's winning over the crowds with, these, with his determination and with all of these incredible wins. And as the movie progresses, we become very aware of the fact that he's most likely going to have to face this incredible opponent, this guy they call the bear, who actually kills people inside the ring. So Braddock isn't excited necessarily about facing this guy, but he's also not afraid to get in the ring. But the promoters of this particular fight want to make sure that their liability is covered. And so they bring Braddock in and they want to show him some film. They want to make sure that he has seen clearly what this guy can do to him. And so maybe to prevent him from getting in the ring or at least to have their hands washed clear of it. And so they begin to play this film, and Braddock is captivated. You can see that he's getting a bit nervous as he's watching because this guy strikes this dude in the head, and he knocks him out for life. They turn off the brutal scene in the film, and Braddock stands for a moment, and then he asks them to play it again. And they're thinking, fine, we'll show the death blow to you again. Maybe it'll further convince you that you're most likely going to die in the ring. And so they play it. But Braddock isn't looking for that. He's looking to see where his opponent is weak. In fact, in the final fight, he's able to recall the image from that film in order to exploit that weakness. He takes a moment to recognize the weakness of his opponent. Like any good football player or baseball player, he watches some film because he understands that he can see the weakness and he can make adjustments to address that weakness. Same for us. You know, in order to win a battle, a fight with the world, we've got to move from just sizing up our opponent, who are we dealing with, to watching some film to observe some weaknesses and to prepare to get in the ring. So does the world, as John has described it in these verses, have any weaknesses? Well, the answer is yes. And we would find those weaknesses if we just look at these verses and do a study in contrast. But the second that I wrote the phrase out, study in contrast, it sounded like a big snore. So I wanted to figure out a way to make it a little bit more imaginative for us. And so what I want to do is actually play out in your imagination a boxing match between God and the world. We're going to play some film for us. Okay? John presents the two agents, God and the world, as engaged in a fight. And so we're going to see how that fight unfolds as these two people go at it in the ring. All right? So imagine that God and the world are in their separate corners, and the, the, there are three rounds planned to this fight. Round one, God and the world come to the center, they touch gloves, and they battle over, according to the first contrast in verse 15, love. 
Who wins in a battle between God and the world? God does, right? Exactly. He wins round one. Round two, God and the world come to the center. They touch gloves and they battle over, according to the contrast in verse 16, different offers. You know, the world offers us some of the things that we were just looking at a few moments ago, but God doesn't offer those lustful, proud things. Who wins? God does, right? Round three, final round, God and the world come to the center. They touch gloves and they battle over, according to the third contrast in verse 17, the issue of endurance. The world passes away, but God lives forever, and he sustains those who love him forever. So who wins? God does. And he puts his hand up in the air and he's walking around the ring because he's the winner. He always is going to win. And that's the reason some of you think this whole thing is completely ridiculous and silly. Of course, God is going to win in a battle with the world. It's no contrast. It's no contest. The world's love is distorted. Its offer is a lie. Its existence is short-lived. The world has no real lasting power over us. And so in each contrast that John presents, God comes out on top. You're right. In fact, I think that's the exact reason that John is wanting to pit these two things together to demonstrate for us that God is the one who comes on top, out on top every single time. But then the question that we have to ask ourselves is if we're associated with God, then why are we so regularly implicated with the world, the losing side? If we're the ones who love God and it's so clear that he's the one who succeeds in all this, then why are we so often worldly? wrapped up in attitudes and values that are opposed to God. I think it's because over time we forget that God is in charge and that his plan and his agenda and his ways are better. I think the pervasive influence of the world has maybe talked some of us into thinking that its lie is actually truth. I think that we get intimidated and we shrink back as a result. We go with the flow rather than stand out. We keep quiet rather than speaking up. We cower rather than express courage. I have been astounded by how much fear has been struck in my heart as I think about raising a child in the 21st century. This world is crazy. There's some crazy and scary things I've already, she's only four months old, I've already had to have conversations with her because of the pervasive level of technology about boys and dating and all sorts of things. <laughs> Seriously though, it is frightening, isn't it? To raise kids, to live just ourselves in this world with all of its pervasive attitudes and values that are opposed to God. But as I reflect upon how frightened I am, I just realize that's not sourced in faith in God. I'm back in the corner with the world, forgetting that God is the one who's in charge. Do I believe that God is capable of being God or don't I? Isn't my fear actually just a product of worldliness? Yes. I've got to root that stuff out by reviewing some films so that I can re-engage in the fight. I've got to review the weaknesses of the world. John says in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. Don't miss that. The world and its desires pass away. With the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the game is up for the world and its worldliness. Its influence is seriously curtailed by God's oversight of all things. And I can't tell you how hopeful and encouraging that is for my soul. Because God is God and he's on the throne. 
So take heart. You're not fighting a losing battle with the world because it's so strong. It's passing away. Its time is limited. You're only losing. We're, we're only losing if we're resigned to fear and intimidation, acting apart from faith in God's provision for us in the midst of the battle. The world has weaknesses. All right, so we've sized up our opponent. And we've watched some film in order to prepare. Here's the third and final stage in the process. Get in the ring. Get in the ring and start fighting. Yeah, I really appreciate how simple and straightforward John's writing is. He is so black and white on issues. You know, the first line out of the gates of this passage is, do not love the world or anything in the world. How's that for black and white? He, he writes in a really similar and simple way at the end of verse 17, whoever does the will of God lives forever. And this small phrase packs a punch. In eight short words, John presents the motivation and the means for winning in a fight against the world. And we sort of studied these contrasts a little bit in our imaginative boxing ring a moment ago, but I think it's good to look at one of these in a little bit more detail. Take a look at verse 15. John contrasts love for the world with love for God by saying, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Again, that's really black and white. But now look at the structure of verse 17, and this contrast follows a similar pattern. John writes, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. See, love for the Father and doing the will for God, they're in coordinate places in these verses. One defines the other in whatever direction you start. You love God by doing his will, and you do God's will by loving him. Conversely, you don't love God if you don't do his will, and you don't do his will if you don't love God. This is the way John sees this. He says this stuff all throughout his letter. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says this very starkly, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So there's a close relationship between our love for God and our obedience to him. And this points us right in the direction of our motivation for fighting the world. God in his abundant grace has extended salvation in Jesus to us. And our loving response is to live our lives according to his ways and his agenda and his plan rather than the world's. We want to be shaped by his values and his attitudes. See, our motivation, a response of gratitude and obedience to God's grace, then undergirds the means, doing his will out of love. And they just go back and forth. You know, I even think that motivation is the key issue when it comes to our fight with the world. Just this past week, I was sitting in one of, these, uh, one of the men's community groups that makes up our men's super group on Wednesday mornings. And we were going along with the Bible reading schedule, reading the book of Mark. Some of you are probably doing that with us, and you've read Mark, sections of Mark recently. And we came to the section where Jesus was asked by somebody, what is the greatest command? Which is just another way, by the way, of saying, what's God's will? How can I know what it is, and then I can start to do it? And Jesus responds, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, well, love for God and love for people are so closely connected that you can sum up all of God's day-in and day-out obedience issues by saying, you just got to love God and love people. 
And so we read that in our group, but we decided to go the other way around. Rather than Jesus who summarizes it, we wanted to get more specific, some specific ways in our lives that we could show love for God. And so we came up with a list of like 10 of those things. It didn't take very long for us to do that. It took only a few minutes, and we came up with things like thanking God and worshiping God, stuff like that. That list was pretty simple to make. As I left this time together with this community group, I started to reflect on this, and afterwards, I came up with a couple of reasons that I was struck by that whole experience. The first reason I was struck by it is because it didn't take us very long to come up with what we know God wants us to be doing, what it would look like to love him, to show love for him, to demonstrate our love for him. God has made this stuff really clear to us. But I was struck secondly by the fact that we don't do what we know we should do. Really simple, but it's true. But even more importantly than those two things, I was struck by the fact that I don't want to do the stuff on that list. Love for God is my way of dislodging the influence of the world in my life. But when I look at that list, I just think of it in terms of drudgery rather than joy. And the reason is, I'm guessing, and I could say this maybe for you too, that we all would rather follow the world's attitudes and values because that's more enticing and satisfying and it seems like more fun than we would to listen to what God says, to do what we're told according to God. Ironically, the world has its own drum that it's beating and we're all doing what we're told by it, but we'd rather do what we're told by it than God because for some reason that translates into more fun. You know, this, this drudgery perspective thing, the thing that I bring to this, totally misunderstands love and obedience as John's presenting it here. Now, I should have looked at that list of things that we came up with and God's will in 1 John and loving God and obedience to God in 1 John, and I should have thought this instead. I should have thought this is a joy because this is how God has made me and how he's asking me to live. I don't have to do this stuff, but I get to do this stuff out of devotion, out of allegiance, out of love for God. This then is sheer privilege. It's motivation. Our motivation matters. A response of gratitude and obedience to God's grace undergirds the means doing his will out of a response of love for him. Folks, I will never stop loving the world until I start loving God by being obedient to his will as a response to his grace. You will never, I will never, we will never stop loving the world until we start loving God by obediently doing his will as a response to his grace. John doesn't define God's will for us here in verse 17. But he gives us a directive that can help us to put some pieces together in contrasting the will of God versus the will of the world. We've looked at it several times already right at the beginning of the passage. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Right there in verse 15. And so the question we need to ask is, how do I stop loving the world? How do I not love the world? Well, love for the world was described in verse 16 by these three different activities. And all we need to do is flip them around. And they'll fall right into the category of God's will for us. I don't want to take the time to flesh all of this out in great detail, partly because it would take too much time, and partly because I think it's our responsibility individually to do this, and maybe even in our community groups to do this together. But I do want to point us in the right direction. Okay? So do you remember the three things in 1 John 2.16 that we looked at a little while? I paraphrased them, summarized them as seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake and stuff for stuff's sake and self for self's sake, if we just flip those things around, 
If we're loving God by doing his will, then we're going to make decisions in the light of eternity rather than the here and now. I'm going to live with a long view. If we just flip those around, I'm not going to hoard, but rather I'm going to give generously. I'm not going to live stuff for stuff's sake. Thirdly, I'm not going to live self for self's sake. Instead, I'm going to humbly serve other people than, than be self-centeredly all about me. That, those three big picture concepts can be worked out in all sorts of specific and very particular ways in our lives. When we put legs to those things, which again, I would encourage you to do very soon and very specifically, they become the primary influences in our lives. And then we're actually in the ring. We're fighting the world. Let me conclude with a brief summary of all of what we've covered here. The world is our opponent. It's sneaky, but after we've sized this opponent up, we can observe the schemes and see how they affect us. The world is seductive and powerful, but it has a weakness. It has limited power. The world and its desires pass away, John says. And the world is a fierce opponent, but can be defeated by a love reversal obediently doing God's will as a response to his great mercy and kindness and grace in Jesus. 